Hello my beauties and welcome to The Natural High, which is a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. In this episode, I speak to musician and amazing human being Jim Ocean about music, life, love and the status quo. In the winter of 2017, I took my beloved partner and dog away for a Christmas retreat. We'd enjoyed the warmth of LA for Thanksgiving and now wanted to get uber cozy for our first festive year end in America. We found a cabin in the woods on Airbnb. It ticked all the boxes. It was beautiful, well-maintained and enjoyed lush forests all around it for sensational walkies for our devilish but delectable Yorkshire Terrier Rafa. It was in Guerneville, California, a wonderful, quirky, artsy, slow-paced town 90 minutes north of San Francisco on the Russian River. The cabin exceeded all of our expectations. It was set in gorgeous gardens amongst the mammoth, age-old trees in the Redwood Forest. And we were greeted by some particularly friendly hosts who said we should join them for a drink when we'd settled in. Little did we know then that these guys would become great friends, play all the live music at our wedding, and generally emanate positivity and light whenever we met. Jim and Kathy Ocean are well-known musicians who put on bewitching outdoor music events every summer in California. They're exceedingly colourful souls, and I'm delighted to have had the chance to interview Jim about, well, pretty much everything. You'll also get a chance to listen to lots of their amazing music, and look out for the Kathy Ocean podcast, which will be coming soon. So sit back, relax, have a listen to the inimitable Jim Ocean, and let me know your own thoughts on the subjects discussed. You can find out all about where we stayed by going to thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash Jim Ocean. Or follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club. The first song I'm going to play you is called Sidewalk Astronomer, which Jim and Kathy played on our wedding night in front of an enraptured audience. <sighs> the Natural High. And though it's cold 
tonight he's all right there's a light inside him burning bright i feel it then i say good night and to the next curious eyes he says come see the moon tonight come see the universe and all the light that's traveled for so long oh please don't turn away come see the turning of the milky way it's playing like a song 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 just like a song on a clear San Francisco set the scene for me uh, about where you are right now uh, well we're sitting here in the little dining area of our uh, our uh, acre of hippie heaven here in the Russian River and outside the oh, berry picking is really good right now we've got our uh, string bean teepees growing and our usual vacation renter compound uh, we just met some nice people from uh, Sausalito who are in the guest room right now so are you in Guerneville we are in Guerneville. Yes. Oh, I see. Okay, great. I didn't know where you were because you've got another location, haven't you, where you have yurts and things right in the, in the wilderness. Yeah, we were going to go up there, but we were interrupted by the birth of our second grandchild, Trafton Jack Stevenson, uh, this week, who uh, came into the world and uh, kind of uh, set a ripple of uh, events going to where we came back to Russian River instead of going up to the yurt. Congratulations. Kathy, both of you, I've, um, I heard that it was it was in the offing, but I didn't hear about your. I, I knew there was a successful conclusion, but it sounds as if it was a bit of a trial. Yeah, there was a C-section involved. Uh, you know, in former centuries, it would have been a tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but all is well that ends well, right? Yeah, and then we found out an interesting fact to it. I guess 30% or more of births now are C-sections. I've become a, a pregnancy aficionado over the last few weeks in particular. I, I know, that's why I read it. Oh, absolutely. I've got two audio books yeah. on the go at the moment. One of them is a 40-hour book called The Baby Book. And the, the other one's a 30-hour one. So, like, literally, it's just constant. I'm getting into it. But, yeah, I've heard that 30%, well, this is one of the facts that I heard, One of 30%, over 30% of um, pregnancies, of childbirth yeah. in America are C-section. And that's massively more than is necessary, I've heard as well. I know. I guess Caesar was ahead of his time. <laughs> absolutely uh, so you're back in Guerneville why don't you why don't you also tell me something about Guerneville in general how did you um end up there because it is a beautiful place and just um to give my listeners some context uh, we met you guys in Guerneville um uh, in I think about a year and a half ago and uh, we were lucky enough to come up to your place which is 
absolutely bewitchingly beautiful uh, in the middle of the redwoods in California and um, such such a welcoming place and you guys as you pretty much do every time we see you you just exceeded all expectations with your hospitality and ingenuity mm. well thank you very much that's very very nice and very generous we feel uh, you guys are, are we're just a great uh, combination of helping us out, you know, as, as renting our, our unit, but also becoming friends, which was a, a nice uh, circle, I think. It's so beautiful. Tell me about how you how you ended up in Guerneville, because I, I don't know if, especially people outside of America, they probably haven't heard about Guerneville, and it was a hidden gem to us. Oh, well, you're going to love this story as an Englishman, Oliver, because it involves a, a British product. Okay. <laughs> So I had a 1976 completely beautiful, uh, detailed out MGB. Beautiful. Yes. And there's two things that MGB, and for people who don't know what that is, it's a British sports car. Mm-hmm. It was con- kind of considered the, uh, the sports car for the common man. Right. Okay. Uh, that's right. Morris Garage in uh, your lovely country uh, designed this as a sports car for the everyday guy, like me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so the one thing that MGBs you could count on uh, in doing is uh, give you a, provide you a great time when you're driving them with their low, uh, you know, to the ground rack and pinion and the top down and the tonneau cover on, you know, that freedom place like you were just mm. you're flying down the road. It felt, uh, it felt then, suitably dangerous. Yeah, a little bit. But the <laughs> other thing that an MGB could be reliably uh, depended on is uh, they always break. Okay. Okay. So Kathy, who loved taking this car out, she said, Jim, I want to take the car. We were living in Martinez, California, about two hours south and east of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got tired of the suburbs and we wanted to get out of there and move to a more rural area. But we hadn't had any plans or didn't know where that would be. Uh, but then Kathy took the MGB and it reliably broke on her in Jenner, California, 15 minutes to the west of us here. Serendipity. Then it was right. And so then it had to be towed to the nearest garage, which was here in Guerneville, where it languished for about a month and a half. I'm sorry, when was this, Jimmy? What year was this? Uh, it was about 18 years ago. So here it is in the garage. And these guys, they don't know how to fix the MGB. I mean, it's a British sports car. It's, we're in a rural village. They don't have the parts. So we keep coming back to, to kind of put the pressure on them and to, uh, you know, try to talk them into fixing it faster so we could get it back. But in the meantime, uh, Kathy, uh, uh, while she was walking around the street, found a, a real estate listing for this property. That is so crazy. I know. So you could say the MGB is uh, breaking down was very fortuitous because it, ha- it was a great uh, move that we came here. Yeah, it was a good move. So how long were you in Guerneville then the very first time? Uh, well, uh, for myself, uh, the very first time I came to Guerneville was when my, my, my parents moved us out here to the West Coast from Tulsa, Oklahoma mm. uh, in 1969. And we were living in Oakland down off of Fruitvale Avenue, which just seemed like hell to me because I was a kid from Oklahoma with a fishing pole looking for turtles and snakes. That must have been such but, a crazy contrast. Right. So I, uh, I, I pressured my parents. I was going crazy living in Oakland. And I said, I need to get somewhere where I can go fishing. And I looked on a map and I saw this place called the Russian River. I said, let's go there. Right. Because it wasn't too far away. Mm. So I had my fishing pole all strung up. And the minute I saw the, the river, I said, Dad, pull over. And I bailed down, a, I bailed down a, a, a slope. I did one cast into the river and I caught a trophy-sized bass in one cast. Oh, my God. Right. And then later that day, 
I saw a couple walking a uh, duck on a leash down Main Street. And I thought, this place is really cool. I'm still in the glow of catching this fish. And then right after that, we went to Armstrong Woods and they used to run shows there every weekend. They'd have big band, classical, all kinds of things. And I'm sitting out in the crowd, a 15 year old with my guitar. I always took my guitar everywhere. And I had it over my shoulder. And these old guys who were probably my age then sees this kid out in the audience going, hey, kid, come up here and play us a song on the break. <laughs> at the age of 15. So that was at the 15. So that, that so they, they pushed me forward. I only, you know, peed in my pants. I was, I was terrified. I'd never been in front of an audience. I only played for myself. I was into East Indian classical music in those days. So I always strung the guitar in a different tuning, mm. which didn't seem to, you know, arouse much interest around the people around me, but I loved it. So but I got up there. And I played this Indian raga Whoa. on the stage of the Armstrong Woods Forest Theater. Wow. Which we've been booking for 13 years now. Right, yeah. So that's weird, too. So crazy. Yeah. So, um, you, you even, so in 69, in, sorry, in 69, it was still like really quirky and hippie and bohemian then. Or even more so, maybe. Well, the, this district, um, historic or some would say hysterically controlled <laughs> district five of Sonoma County is, is under strict, um, 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 they're not going to allow anything, but what's here. You basically fix the rot. You can't build anything new. Mm. So it's like a preservation, proper preservation area. Right. It's completely preserved the way it is. So it actually looks about the same as it did in 1970. It's the people that have changed. There was a big gay influx after the, the Redwood Harvest and, and the initial uh, building of the, uh, of the second and third houses that uh, many of these places are, were built by union money. People who made money uh, building the Bay Area, where you are, would have okay. had a lot of money in those days with union wages. Plus, they also had access to many construction sites where all these materials were just lying around from the building of Berkeley and Oakland and San Francisco. And they would come here and tack houses together. Wow. And that's our houses like that. Mad. And it's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful place to live. Is it a celebrated place then amongst Americans? Is it well known in America, Gernville? Um, it, it is lately because for some reason, maybe because of social marketing and the Internet, we seem to get a lot of press when we when we flood. It's, okay. I guess it must I guess it must get a lot of clicks or it must sell papers still somewhere. I don't know. So we hear Guerneville when there's a flood coming. Of course, we all laugh about it around here because the floods around here are not the kind you see in disaster documentaries where some big wall of water is coming to wash you away. It's mm. just filling up the bathtub, the, the oxbow of the Russian River, which humans have cut out by putting the town of Guerneville and other, so that the, occasionally there's too much water coming from the sky and the tide is backing up. The oxbow of the Russian River fills in, and that's what's called the flood. Uh, so it, would it not be sort of fairly easy to irrigate them to, to sort of... Oh, yeah. Well, they're, they're, the, uh, the places where you cut all the trees out, they grow vineyards. And then you have the Corbell Vineyard out there. But most places around here, especially in the residential districts, are, are houses under trees. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically like, you know, living in Lothlorien in Lord of the Rings, you know. <laughs> is such a green and lush part of the world isn't it but i suppose is that just because it's on the russian river because it does get incredibly hot in the summer it follows the ecosystem of sequoia sempervirens also known as the coastal redwood the redwood region is from about roughly big sur 
up to the Oregon border and, and about an average width of about 20, 25 miles. So it's a narrow strip along the coast that keeps the ecosystem wet. It kind of brings, it brings in the rain more here than, say, uh, in other places east of here, like Santa Rosa or Contra Costa. Is it essentially because of forest? Is it forest? Or yeah, because of forest. Yeah. And it gets progressively wetter within that 20 to 25 mile width. Uh, as you get closer to the sea. So we get about 80 in a normal year. Who knows what that is anymore? Mm. But we normally get 80 to 90 inches of rain here a year, which is a lot. But then if you go to the Casadero Ridge, they'll get 120 inches of rain 10 miles away. Wow. Yeah, it's really strange. And being in California, there are so many little microclimates. I've never experienced anything quite like it. Ah. You can just look from where we are in San Francisco. You can look two miles away and it can be like balmy, blazing sunshine and it can be pissing down with rain where we are. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why you have such a big state with all these microclimates in it is that when when the uh, the westward expansion of the American, I call it empire, comes over the Rockies and and battles the Spanish for California and basically kicks their butt and moves them out, as well as rubbing out all the Indians that they met along the way. uh, They had they had a fairly they had the largest army on the West Coast at the time. And when the federal government said, hey, great, you got California, we want to make several states out of it. And these guys in California said, ah, oh, no way. Come up, make us do that. And that's why we have the California that we have. That's why it's so vast. That's why it's vast. Because they had a big army out here that said, no, 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 this is our entire state. Wow. And when was that? That was uh, right around, right after the Civil War. Okay. Crazy. Yeah, the Donner Party and all those times. I- I have to say that that, the the weather, though, the changeable weather here, it's part of what makes it such a special place, isn't it? Yeah, you you pick your climate and live there, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that you came from Oklahoma. You moved to California as a youngster. Well, actually, I was born in Germany, if you remember. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, I just found out I'm a German citizen. I'm a a citizen of the European Union. I just found out. Are you going to get a German passport? I am. Why not? And it's a very... It's a very interesting story. Uh, Please, the reason I, I just found out I'm a German citizen is because I'm concerned about the political instability and the cultural instability of America. So I'm looking at exit strategies, frankly. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, meeting cool people like you guys. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I, my mother and father, my father was in the American Air Force. and My mother was a German bar girl who was just looking for a date. But there were no guys her age, 19 years old, uh, alive. They were all dead. Most of those kids that age were dead from the war, World War II. So she started dating my father, who uh, got, and then she got pregnant with me. And I was a bastard, a legal bastard for three years. And so I got German citizenship because my German citizenship went to her. Wow. But she wasn't married. Is that trippy? It is. And what about, but what about your dad? I think it's hysterical. Did you ever reconnect with him? With who? With your dad. Oh, no. They got married like three and a half years later. I see. Okay. And then he took, he took her and me to Bismarck, North Dakota and, and proceeded. He was a traveling salesman and we proceeded to live all over the damn place. So I went from Bismarck 
to Denver, Colorado, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then out here to California. Do you consider yourself pretty much a Californian now? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm really glad to be in California. I'd rather be here than other parts of the country right now. Mm, so true. Yeah, it feels like a sanctuary, especially Northern California, and especially near the coast. Ideally, I always want to live near the coast. Um, but you, to me, from my position of naivety, you seem to me like a quintessential Californian. <laughs> I really have, like, you know, I've worn the tie-dye. You know, I, I've, I've been authentic. Ever since and you're just cool and you've got a positive state, uh, frame of mind and you're you're very liberal and you're relaxed and easygoing and free spirited. You know, all the things you associate with with uh, with California from from abroad. Anyway, <laughs> I know. Well, there is a there's a Japanese phrase, Esho Funi, which means you can't separate yourself from the, the geography that you you are bound by. And even you as an Englishman are now getting this Hotel California thing like coming in every day, every minute. Right. You're. <laughs> you still got that core of uh, being raised in the UK, but California is just like coming in on you. So I've been here since 69, you know, I'm, I'm 67 years old. Uh, yeah, I've been steeping in the California tea. Amazing. <laughs> but, and didn't you work in the tea industry for a while? It's a beautiful little segue. Yeah, well, of course. Yeah, I, I uh, actually got started uh, um, with uh, Celestial Seasonings Tea. I was one of the original distributors back when they were still wildcrafting the stuff in the uh, mountains of Colorado. And Celestial right. Seasonings was the hippie name of one of the founders, of, a, of one of his girlfriends. Wow, so cool. <laughs> um, so tell me, as someone who's so well-traveled in America, wh where are your favorite places? Where would you recommend to, for people to go? Obviously, you know, I'm very drawn to California, but it's such a beautiful country. You know, there's, there's always this cliche about, oh, Americans don't travel. They never travel internationally. Those of them haven't got passports. But there are some mitigating factors, such as the fact that America is a continent which is so vast, so varied, so beautiful. You've got every single climate, pretty much, haven't you? Every single type of, of landscape and vista in America. There's lots to see here. Yeah, well, I would say because I I know you guys, you know, and and and, and know your plight and and your and your and, uh, and your greatness. So I think you should move here. <laughs> and the reason why I say that yep. is that California and you're young, and so California is going to dry out. That the, the predictions of California, aside from some of the weird, you know, flooding experiences and 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 you know some of those more punctuated storms, over the long term, and it's very bad news for the redwoods, but hopefully they can hang on. California is supposed to get more and more arid. Right. And so you really want to follow the water. You want to follow the green. You want to stay away from where it's really dry and windy, where you can get those horrible fires. Mm -hmm. Like here by the coast, you've got the redwoods basically keeping things cooler, keeping things greener, keeping things less windy. And also, there's a really good K-8 through school over here, Guerneville School, that uh, would be very good to have your kid in. Brilliant. I love it. You've got it all planned out for us. I absolutely love it. Yeah, hugely tempted, I have to say. Yeah, it's not as expensive as some of the other places that you've lived before. I'm so pleased you mentioned this as well about the trees again, because the trees literally protect you in Guerneville, don't they? The redwood trees. In the really intense heat of the summer, you stand under the trees and you've got this cool breeze and, and you're protected from the ultraviolet rays. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. And, and because the trees are so tall, the, the windy experiences are much diminished. Like a lot of times you mm. move different places in the Bay Area, depending on where the coastal fog battles the, uh, the heat of, the, uh, of creating this suction between this hot central valley and the cold sea. So you get these really windy places, which would be great to, you know, harvest wind, but not so cool to live there all the time, you know. 
Mm, and so, but yeah. here you can see the wind. It kind of bounces off the top of the trees, and and the the the, the atmosphere right around you feels more breathy than windy. I like that nice. a lot. It's like it's beautiful. It's like it's breathing. It's really nice. That's a wonderful nuance that you've described there. When you said breathing instead of windy, I, I felt the breath of the wind. It's way better. You know, it's 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 amazing that the Russian River isn't more developed, considering how developed much of the Bay Area is, even it's in outlying areas or compared to a place like Marin. Mm. You know, uh, uh, it's 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 a lot less developed and will remain, like we say, this way for probably forever. And so, you know. I say you should come here, and then you know, like we like we were saying, if you wanted more heat, you you could go to Santa Rosa for the day, <laughs> or you could go to the Central Valley. Right. You know, more heat. If you don't mind heat, gold country is kind of nice. You've already sort of described my ideal scenario: it's somewhere that's fairly close to water and just a little bit cooler than sort of inland places. I mean, it gets crazy hot inland in California, doesn't it? But if you try and stay near the coast, and you get that beautiful breeze oh, yeah. from the Pacific. Yeah, and then the Russian River for a little kid, like you're going to have a little kid for a number of years, yeah. it's very shallow for most of the time. So it's like a giant wading pool. Hmm. And all you have to do is just stay near your kid before they learn how to swim, and, and, and they're only up to their chest. Oh, it's so beautiful. I was there two weeks ago, and I was dangling my legs. And you can just paddle around the shallows with your kid. Hmm. And then when the kid gets bigger and they, they know how to swim, you can go out in the central current and, you know, do your Tarzan oh. maneuver. It's such a beautiful place. Okay, so I want to discuss music with you because you're one of the most talented musicians that I know. And um, we met each other in Guerneville and you were our Airbnb host and you exceeded all expectations with your hospitality, as I've already said. You invited us into your house and told us a little bit about your music career and we listened to some music as well. And we took away some CDs with us uh, of, of a couple of albums of yours. And to this day, uh, some of my favourite music, absolutely bewitching. We, right. we love... We love your material, and you know that. And um, so just, we were so lucky to have met you. It was so serendipitous. And then you came and did, and played music at our wedding on our wedding day. We drove on a cable car was, through San Francisco, and you you amazed all of our friends. And you even brought, was, you even bought, pro, you printed up programs of all the stuff you were going to play so that people could I sing know. along, so people could choose songs. It was so amazing. I'm forever grateful for that, not least because of how talented you are as a musician. Time that it takes. 
space. Twenty minutes of holding your breath for a view, and the scene that unfolds of a dry ancient sea that's so old. Water is memory. How did your music journey start? Take us through it. Yeah, well, you know, I think I was, uh, I was, I was really uh, into music all the way back to when I was a kid. I started playing uh, along with the Nutcracker Suite with my mother's maracas because that was the only instrument I had at the time. So it was like, you know, like that, right? And so I started that way, and then my mother watched me play along with the Beatles, holding a broom up and pretending I'm John Lennon, right? When I was a little kid. And uh, she goes, so she got me a guitar. And uh, it kind of started with that. I was about 12, 13 years old. I wrote my first song when I was probably 18. There was a guy staying. I, was, I, I had a roommate house with a, with a, with a friend of mine. And we, we used to in, invite people that were kind of in between houses. We were all kids just kind of trying to get out of our parents' house. So we would say, oh, yeah, you can move in our garage for a while. And we were lucky enough to have this older guy. He was 32 years old. Uh, living there for a while, and he was a songwriter, and he was the first songwriter I'd ever seen or ever heard. And and the plus because the place was so funky, there were holes in the floor in my bedroom, and I could actually spy on him writing music <laughs> down there. <laughs> and so I said, "Wow, I think I can do that." And so I, I how was he writing? I, uh, was he writing lyrics? Was he just was he uh, noodling on the guitar and writing lyrics? How was he doing it? Both, you know, he was he was playing. He was kind of a folk guy. He was doing a lot of what I would consider kind of almost country-sounding folk. Mm -hmm. I was more into British Invasion stuff, Led Zeppelin, Moody Blues, stuff like that. Okay. And so, you know, when I started writing my songs, it's you know, it was more like Tuesday Afternoon or Ride My Seesaw. You know, I was more into rock and roll. Mm. And so, um, uh, that's really what got me going. But can I say, Jim, at that point, had you already decided that this is this was your calling? No, I didn't make up. I didn't really make up my mind on that until I was about. Mm, I was about twenty then, maybe. I, I didn't make up my mind on following music all the way through until I was about thirty. Okay. Because I decided that now that my twenties were over, and I, I wasn't a rock star yet, right? <laughs> the, the <laughs> Dude, I, so I followed a very similar path. <laughs> I, I mean, we all hung our hats on the story about uh, uh, Bob Seger, who made it when he was 30 right maybe there's still hope bob Seger wow. was 30 yeah but anyway 
Uh, and there's another story about that I can tell you later if we have time. But uh, the thing is, yeah, I, I decided at the age of 29 I was going to go back to school and get a, get my uh, my master's in psychology and maybe become a psychoanalyst. <laughs> Uh, it was just it was kind of the just a different idea that I had in my head that sounded interesting because I was in, I was I've always been interested in, in the brain and psychology mm-hmm. and why people do the things they do. Uh, and so uh, I was going to go back to school and do that. And then on the way, uh, as I got my transcripts ready, I just had this epiphany one day, like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Why don't I do this? I don't want to sit in a room all day long and listen to people. You didn't feel I passionate about this. it. It wasn't it wasn't a passion. So, no. And so I went at, at, at coincidentally the same time, I followed this young woman uh, just on my, it was kind of what I consider my, my uh, easy rider trip. Every, you know, much of my generation here in the States were very affected by easy rider, sure. Jack Kerouac, the great American road trip across the continent, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And we all tried to do it in our own way. And so I took off in my Volkswagen van, my 1965 <laughs> Volkswagen van. Oh my the God, last amazing. time. Amazing. Because I lived in Sonoma County before and was part of a vegetarian restaurant commune called Our Small Planet, which has a whole different chapter in my life. But after I left those guys, we went up to the Eel River, we all took acid together, and then I took off on a two-month journey across the continent in my Volkswagen van. I picked up my little brother in Portland, and he followed with me, and I eventually wound up uh, reconnecting with my girlfriend at the time, who was from Connecticut, who had moved back to Hartford. And I lived with her there for a while. And while I was there, there was a, a, a coffee house, an acoustic music coffee house across the street from my Schlock apartment in Hartford. Mm. And they had Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys. They had all kinds of uh, very, uh, you know, fairly large, well-known names for the East Coast folk scene playing there. Mm. And I just started opening for them. So when I came back to the East Coast after getting my heart broken by this gal, that's another story. I got back in my van when it came back all the way. Thank God it made it all the way back to California. And when I when I wound up uh, uh, back in California, I had to adopt my younger brother through a, bu- through a bunch of family problems. And I wound up being his legal guardian. And I was I was stuck in uh, Concord Walnut Creek area. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And this one guy came up to me and he said, why don't you start a coffee house at the Unitarian Church in Walnut Creek? And so I ran a coffee house there for 25 years. I had Richie Havens there, John Sebastian, you know, Booker T. We had all the greats there that were, you know, no longer playing large venues, but were still playing 300 to 500 seat venues. And we I had never a lot of those knew people. that. That's amazing. Yeah. And so I'm very influenced by all those people and became friends with some. Hmm. Yeah. That, was, that was, must have been such a, a thrilling. You did it for 25 years. So much work. I don't even know how I did it. I'm standing still by comparison to those days. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about adopting your brother. Are you guys still close? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's in the car, uh, Carpenters Union. We have very complimentary skills as brothers. You know, I say, <laughs> help. My fa- my house is falling down. Or you don't go, help. I need some you know advice around these uh, things. Uh, so we have a we have a very close relationship he he lives up in the uh, mountain area uh, above placerville california so really that just sort of fed your own desire to to keep making music because i see you as like a vocational lifelong musician basically it, it just seems like that's that's your as far as i can see that's your calling is that is that how it feels to you now 
I think if, if you know if I'm proud of something you know regarding my my connection to music other than songwriting itself, which to me is the highest thing form and and the, really the thing that keeps me going in music. But I you know realizing at a young age, I mean the the younger you can make realizations about yourself in terms of your skills and your na- your natural talents, and getting out there in the world with them and trying your best, you know, because we live in a capitalistic society to at least, you know, figure out a way to make some money on it. I realized at a very young age that uh, once I reached about 29, 30 years old, that the music I was writing, in fact, I can directly quote the Rhino Records president company, uh, the president of the company, he said, Jim, I love your music, but you're too intellectual for an American audience. (laughs) That's one of the reasons you like my stuff, because you're not American. <laughs> I should have left the country. I uh, but no, he was right. You that's, know, that's, he's really right. But the point is, no, but the point I, is I took, I've been welcomed sorry, with open but, arms by American people, so I'm certainly not going to pass judgment. Well, not everybody's too stupid to get what I'm saying about <laughs> Yeah, Thank yes. God. Um, but yeah, so, but yeah, it is unusual. Your music, like, it's not, not like too much stuff. Who are you most inspired by? I would say the British Invasion. Okay, all those groups. I, I loved the Beatles. I was really into the Stones, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and you know that doesn't just, that doesn't preclude a lot of cool American bands, Sly and the Family Stone. You know, Jimi Hendrix. I, I was a kid of the late '60s. You know, the psychedelic rock era, Woodstock. That's my generation. You know, we were rockers. I mean, we liked the folk stuff. I did enjoy all, a lot of the folk stuff, but I was really into more of the folk rock scene. And, and uh, I, I had, an, I was getting ready to to play a, uh, electric guitar, but I I was about mm, 17 years old, and I and I at uh, my father's car, which had bald tires on it, I wound up uh, rear-ending somebody who got a whiplash, and she sued us, and I had to sell all my electric guitar equipment. To pay for the lawyer. Wow. So I wanted oh to acoustic ever since. <laughs> That's so, dude, isn't that such an amazing story? Because what I was going to say to you was, you talk to me about rock music, but I don't, you know, sometimes rock music, I love rock music, of course, but sometimes rock music can mm-hmm. be a bit noisy. I would never describe your music as noisy. It's 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 an homage to sound, to the beauty of sound. It's never never too noisy. It's never shrill or brash. It's incredible instrumentation. It's you remind me of David Bowie the way that you present yourself, well, not the way that you perform. You played acoustic guitar. Say. You know, we're very simple. right. Okay, that's right. We, but yeah, I'm so. I, in some ways, I'm glad that you were sued. Is is basically the upshot. <laughs> I know. You know, it's been. I, I really think how much energy I've saved over the years by not having to lug a heavy amp around. You know, or uh, right the shoulders, the damage you would have done to the shoulders over time, thrashing of an electric guitar. I just, no, I, I really enjoy the acoustic guitar, but you know, you can play acoustic guitar and and still have a kind of a rock and roll sensibility. You know, so you know, not the ballads. You know, not, not like say Sidewalk Astronomer, although it does. If you notice on Sidewalk Astronomer, because I know you know that piece uh, on the bridge. Bam, it goes into that A minor and bam, the drummer hits, you know, so sometimes you just save it mm-hmm. up for a piece of it. But then uh, you the rest of it is is a, an acoustic ballad. But uh, right now I'm really having a lot of fun because for the first it, it took 65 years for me to finally put a rock band together. And so I have a drummer and a bass player and I'm playing I'm holding down the rhythms and I have a, a, a electric guitar player that 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 kind of brings up the, a little bit of the rhythm. 
And so I'm really enjoying that. And we just recorded 11 songs uh, in February, and then we got shut down by the virus. So <laughs> we're kind of waiting. I've met your guitarist, right? I met that guy, lovely, tall man with long hair. The, the bass guy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bass guy, bass, Steve, right. Yeah, he's in our bubble. He's coming here tomorrow night, and we're going to be doing a little rehearsal. Nice. So you're, you're hoping to get a new album together. Are you and then going out on the road? But that's a very nebulous idea at the moment, isn't it? Because we have no idea when you'll be able to do something like that again. I suppose outdoor events are more likely to reconvene before indoor events. And you could easily. I've been to an outdoor event of yours, which was absolutely bewitching. That was fun. Oh, that my was a, God. That was a night. So, so just to set the scene, it was in a huge uh, um, residential house and the owners of the house agreed to put this this gig on. I think maybe the one of the daughter of the owner of the house was in one of the bands that was playing. Is that right? Yeah, it was basically people under 25 and over 50. Yes, (laughs) you were. It was transgenerational. That was very rare. But it was absolutely beautiful. And, you know, the idea, it's my ideal set, basically, because it was intimate. There were only like, you know, maybe a hundred people there, something like that. It wasn't like some massive mosh pit. And uh, and it just felt so, per- it was perfect. It was absolutely beautiful. We got to hear so many of your great songs. The new stuff that you're bringing out now, is it the stuff that you're recording? Is it similar to to what, I, what I, I've um, listened to before? Could I, can I expect more of the same? It, it kind of goes conceptually between... Uh, topical uh, statements about the earth and, and, and how people are responding to the problems that are going on with the earth right now, and uh, a kind of a liberal dose of some social satire. Uh, like, for instance, one of the songs, which is a playful uh, poke, um, is called Who Needs Tattoos When You Can Have Scars? Wow, I love your creativity. <laughs> and then we were, we're doing a funk tune called White Man Overbite, it's 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 both comment on the, the whole white supremacy thing and it's a dance craze. Wow. And then finally, there's one called Living in the Weeds, where I look out at all my friends and realize they're all just different kinds of metaphors for different insects living in the weeds. You know, you know, the Trumps and all the other people are so rich. The Elon Musks of the world, they're way above us. You know, like they have the lawnmower, you know, but we're down here trying to eke out our lives living in the weeds yeah right um i i'm thinking about your songs and i can't wait to hear the new album and i really hope there's a time in in the not too distant future where i can watch you perform again live because that would be truly special but i'm just thinking about all the songs that i love of yours micro to macro um the loneliest thing Mm. in the world uh coming of age in the milky way sidewalk astronomer of course which is incredibly close to my heart because it was it reminds me so much of my wedding day I know, and it was so special to play it for you guys at your your reception at the Greens. Oh my God, so beautiful. I love Said the Dark to the Light as well. And I, I love the instrumentation on all of your albums. I just love the attention to detail with the with the instrumentation. Is there, I've said asked you this before, but there's some like woodwind instrument on there even. Is it an oboe or something like that? In the Dark to the Light? Actually, yeah, there was, we put, a, we put a bunch of that on there, but we also had some... Uh, um, um, traditional uh, uh, flutes of various countries. Uh, my producer and arranger, Brian Whistler, is a very talented uh, performer on many, many instruments, and he has. Uh, I don't. I don't remember the name of some of those, some of those instruments. But we didn't necessarily want. Uh, you're talking about the album Pop Tunes for Mystics, I think you're talking mm-hmm. about, right? With my big old white hair sticking up. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. On the cover. Yeah. Yeah. It, I will hold. I will keep you 
I've made you a home Galaxies to enfold you You won't be alone I will hold us together I'll keep you inside Shelter you from the weather Said the dark to the light I was there in the beginning I was there at the birth When the stars started singing I heard your son and your earth You're the snow on my mountain And you shine so bright Like a sail on a black sea Set the dark to the light Open your mind to me And you'll see I've always been there I know that you can't see me, but I'm everywhere, I'm everywhere I've been waiting to meet you like a long-lost friend I've been wanting to feel you Coming close in the end Cause we live in a story With so much to write Someday soon you will know me Said the dark to the light Set the dark to the light. Set the dark, Set the dark to the light. Set the dark to the light. Set the dark. Set the dark. Yeah, we didn't want to necessarily only just have electric guitar solos, which are, you know, we've all of us have heard so many of those. We wanted to hear it. Uh, we wanted to hear the release of the song, the solo of the song, the climax of the song, done in more uh, world music instruments. Mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, that that album was specifically meant to be kind of a chill record, rainy day record, driving record that you could just chill out and zone out on. Oh, and that and those kind of sounds do it better, I think, in many ways than the typical um, pop guitar solo. It's so good. And um, you can find all of this at jimoceanmusic.com, can't you? You can find all of your music there. Is that is that the best place to go for people to, to find it? Yeah, that, yeah. jimoceanmusic.com would be fine. Yeah, that, that's great. We're all kind of furloughed right now, not doing a whole lot of... Of course, there's no gigs. Get it online. You should do some <laughs> gigs in your, um, in your place in Guerneville and just, like, you know, broadcast to the world. How amazing would that be? 
We're working on that. In fact, we have a connection in the. Uh, he's going to do the AV. He's going to he's going to hook us up uh, with video. So we'll have our little uh, show here in our yard, which would seat about I don't know, socially distanced, maybe twenty people. Awesome. And then uh, and then we'll stream to the internet. So we'll have a little hit of an, a real audience combined with a potential international audience. So that's what we're, that's what we're going to do. Uh, you. It seems to me that you do music for music's sake. And I think that's the only way you can be a musician, because if you're doing it for any other reason, for any agenda, a you're probably not going to reach that goal anyway. If you're in music to make money, you probably won't do it because you'll be seen as lacking authenticity. People will see through it. They won't feel the music as much as they should and they won't buy into it in that respect. So I think the only way you can do it is is to do it for music's sake. And in that way, you really enjoy it every day as well, would you say? Absolutely. And, and you know, especially if you're a lyrical songwriter, you know, you have things to say and you, you need to get clear on, on what those things you want to say. I always say uh, to young songwriters, I say, try to say something different. Try to, you know, you're a prism. You know, don't go down the, the usual path. Try to prism in on something else for greater understanding among people, generally speaking. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's sometimes hard to know what, what you're really going to be singing about and staying to the theme uh, of uh, getting clear as to what you want to communicate to the, uh, to the world. And, you know, for myself... As I'm going into my later years, uh, I feel as an elder that I sh my main mission as a songwriter is to is to point out truth when I see us turning away from it. Like in this country, for example, when we too many people spend their time beating on their chest about the American experience, when we should be refining the American experience and we should be taking responsibility for the times we weren't great instead of always trying to be great. Well, I mean, it gets so so tiring to to hear us beating on our chest about how great we are when the rest of the world you know lies there with a big question mark what are the americans doing you know I, for me that <laughs> that's where i'm going with my songwriting uh and that's amazing you know it's so interesting that you say taking responsibility for the things that you don't do so well because i think that's a, a that's a broader problem i think that we live very much in a blame culture where it's all about everybody delegating blame for problems yeah. onto other people. Absolutely. And boy, Kathy and I have a really crazy idea that will just drive, uh, you know, the far right crazy. You know, people who think liberals just by pointing out truth are not patriotic. You know, that, you know, any, anytime you criticize America, you're not patriotic. Oh, my God, you're not patriotic. But we want to have an apology festival. We want to have an atonement festival. We want to have a, a, a festival where we look at the places we really screwed up and go, man, why did we do that? And are we still doing it today? I'm so pleased that you're speaking about this because you are, as I said, a fine musician, but you're also a deep thinker. And so I really want to get your take on the status quo. You know, what do you think about COVID? What are your thoughts about it? Everybody's had profound rumination time to think about, you know, where it came from, how it started, if it's going to end anytime soon, if it's going to get a lot worse. And in general, how it speaks to us as humankind. Or is this like our final warning? What, what are your thoughts about COVID? You know, I don't know how the species has made it this far, because really, most of us are very <laughs> short term thinkers. And, and yet we, we've made it through the millennia, through, you know, the ice ages and through, you know, the Cold War. I mean, we've made it through so many really like short 
places, I mean, really narrow, where we just almost didn't make it. World War II was, was an example. You know, but we seem to, even though we have these horrendous experiences like wars and famine and all the rest, and now COVID-19, where we're feeling it really acutely, what the scientists say, the nature of life is punctuated equilibrium, meaning most of the time it's ah. like this, and then every once in a while it goes, zip like COVID-19, you know, Spanish flu, you know, World War II. But we get lulled into this place after we get over this thing that keeps us from having it happen again. We have to mm. get smarter about long-term thinking. I don't know how that's going to happen. They say the most long-term thinking people on the planet are the Chinese. Even during, even with the communist experience, which is kind of built upon many, many thousands of years of Chinese culture, there's a group think going there about a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan. They seem to think more long-term, and they are on the ascendant as far as, uh, you know, um, influence in the world. So maybe, maybe the Chinese experience will wash over us and we'll, we'll, we'll think more long-term. Because let's face it, Americans just think about the next shopping cart, the next car, you know, the next kid, you know, we, we, once we get over this thing, uh, maybe there will be some plan to accept the next pandemic because it's not going to be the only one that the planet has up its sleeve. And unfortunately, we have a rise of nationalism in the form of Trump and others like the guy down in Brazil and, you know, the guy in the Philippines uh, who are not using this sublime moment of alien invasion you know, it's not coming from outer space. It came from a bat cave. But it's an alien invasion from a bat cave that could have brought the people together instead of everybody going in all these herky-jerky ways, with especially our leader going in a herky-jerky way. Quit the, the World Health Organization. Doesn't want to work with the Chinese. Doesn't want to work with the European Union. Go it alone. Crap. So I don't know. I, 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 my, my jury is out. I don't know, Oliver, if we're going to learn from this. That's the thing, you know, like adversity can be really useful if you actually draw vital life lessons from it. But we're talking about really changing human nature, aren't we? Because, it, you know, we're talking about us changing our ways, the way that we live our life. And I just wonder how quickly people will forget about what's happened and we'll just get back to destroying the planet. It sounds so cliche, but it's true. I mean, even me, like I say even me, I'm not like whiter than white by any means, but I try and live in a sustainable and conscientious way. And I see the amount of waste that I create every day in a, in a family of two. And it's still unacceptable in terms of keeping the planet livable honorable. Yeah, well, having a kid's going to really blow your mind that way because they're not born with a recycling <laughs> point of view. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> my, my stepdaughter well, used to fill it like, right behind me here. I have a clawfoot bathtub it's huge and it you know it takes a billion gallons of water to fill it and my my mm. stepdaughter when she was in uh, i guess she was in intermediate school she would fill it to the rim get in it for two and a half minutes and then pull the puck <laughs> it's but we're just we're so used to living a luxurious lifestyle aren't we that we're just utterly wasteful because we've had more than we need for so long yeah. Well, what do they say that if everybody lived like Americans, that you'd need five Earths, more more Earths to, right. to you know. Yeah. In terms of meat consumption and all that sort of stuff. I know. You know, I, I really try to be thrifty. I try to be thrifty. I, I'm not a consumer. You know, if, if, 
if the American economy relied on me, we, everybody would go broke. I just buy food, you know, I don't go on any kind of luxury trips or anything. Uh, you know, for me, I get enough just living where I live with my guitar and my lovely wife. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't need a lot of stuff. With, with you and uh, Kathy and me and my wife, I think it's behind every great man as a great woman, right? Let's see, what did John Lennon say? Uh, uh, he said, uh, behind every great woman, there's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so much more, so much more. That's, that's John Lennon speaking about Yoko Ono, of course. <laughs> so true. But with, they, they do provide us with a rudder and strength in our lives so much, don't they? they, they I think they both complement our own skill sets particularly well. Yes. You know, we both got really lucky. We have really amazing women. Hmm. How do we get so lucky, Oliver? But you know, the the great thing about you guys is that you're you're so patently best friends as well because you 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 know you do entrepreneurial pursuits together, you do musical pursuits together, you put on loads of events every year, as you've alluded to, and um, so you 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 live and work and love together. It's the ultimate relationship. Do you get do you get annoyed with each other at times? Oh, yeah. Well, we have, you know, we're both strong. We're both alpha, you know, so we have to be mm. careful because we both are very headstrong and uh, are very opinionated about high minded subjects. So we, you know, we have to be but, but we, we don't have the killer instinct that some relationships have around places <laughs> where you might have different of opinion. We don't have guns in our pocket there. We, you know, we have squirt guns. You know, mm. we, don't, we don't we're more playful. We have a playful way of dealing with it and have over the 20 years we've been together, we've, we haven't really gotten into too much trouble. Wow. Uh, and, and our, yeah, well, like right now, um, I don't know if I told you, Oliver, but I, I just finished writing a book called John Lennon's Glasses. It's Amazing. Of- I can't believe this has gone out. This has dipped out of my consciousness for a while. And you said um, you, the last time I saw you, I think, in the flesh, you mentioned that you were proofreading. You were at that sort of stage with it. So it's finally complete yeah. now, is it? Yeah, and Kathy is just the greatest editor. She should have been an editor in the professional world because she's been combing through this thing and all of her suggestions are just spot on so that, you know, when we get this out there, people don't scratch their head and wonder what the heck I was talking about. What is it about? Tell me about it again. Oh, John Lennon's glasses? Can can you uh, talk about the premise? Is it, would that give us, would that be a spoiler? It's It's almost, you know, it, it has a kind of almost mysterious kind of a beginning. Okay, so I was in the studio recording Pop Tunes for Mystics, <clears throat> and the, the first uh, cut on the record, and this was five years ago, mm. is called The Lennon Song. And the way that happened was we were mixing the last songs in the studio, and I get very impatient with mixing. To me, it's just like it's, it's, it's just goes on and on and on, and it gets farther and farther away from where I'm at, which is about the song. <laughs> it's, it's, about, it's like, oh, God, do we have to go through that again? The EQ, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, so I'm sitting here, I'm strumming, strumming guitar in kind of an absent-minded fashion, looking at the at the little things on the uh, computer deal, and I hit this chord. It's kind of an E major. I don't know exactly know what kind of an E major it is, but to me, when I hit it, it sounded like a John Lennon uh, chord, something John Lennon would do. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, my hands just started doing this progression, and before I knew it, I had this whole progression worked out, and I, I felt like... I don't know. I just felt like Lennon was looking over my shoulder. And so I, I decided with Lennon, I, I decided to put Lennon on my shoulder as a songwriting exercise to write a song about universal love. Like all you need is love.
love stays on, love stays here. Everything else disappears. If life's a fire, love is rain. Life's getting colder, love brings a fame. Someone told me love is trying to wake your sleeping So I, I visualized Lennon looking over my shoulder as I'm writing this thing. And he was a critical bastard. So, you know, when, if you do that, it's like putting a hump on your back because he's not going to let you get away with something stupid or shallow. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm writing the song, the Lennon song, and we recorded it and put it on the album. But since then, that whole feeling of Lennon in my life didn't go away. Wow. And so I, I decided that, you know what? What if an older singer-songwriter like myself, on the way to giving it all up and jump off the jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, like I can't take this anymore. I'm too old for this business. Uh, mm-hmm. Goodbye, sayonara. You know, I'm out of here. On the way to that experience, somebody gives him a pair of John Lennon glasses, and when he goes home that night, there's a young John Lennon sitting on his couch from the afterlife, saying, "Don't do it." And he 
And he and, and John Lennon, every time he takes the glasses off, like if he has to sleep and puts it back on, Lennon ages. So he catches Lennon in all his stages up to the point of his death when he was age 40. And there's this whole plot that goes on on the earth with him and Lennon that relates to the afterlife with all the dead rock stars that have already passed. And they're doing this, this action, this battle to save the earth from negativity. Oh, my God, that sounds so beautiful. It sounds like a theater production to me, immediately. Screams oh, theater production. Well, I've been doing readings. You can chuck loads of your music in there as well. Yeah, yeah, well, all the, all the songs on the Pop Tunes for Mystic Records are woven through the plot right. as Lennon pulls this guy back. Sounds amazing, dude. When is it going to be finished? When will I be able to get my hands on it? My filthy mitts. Well, a guy like you... <laughs> If you want to, I don't know anything about the, there's only one thing I know about the book business. It's just as freaking crowded as the music business. Oh yeah, 100%. (laughs) So, you know, you know, when you're 20, you want to be a rock star. When you're 60, you want to be an author. Yeah, write your memoirs. But, um, but dude, but, you do, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you went into it in the same spirit as you do every day with music, that you did it because you wanted to create a beautiful piece of art rather than because you're going to like, you know, be sort of, you know, cutting ribbons and kissing babies in five years time as a celebrated author. <laughs> well, I, I hear there's this thing called a beta reader. And that's the next level we're going to do after we get it copywritten and uh, we're going to take it to the uh, California Lawyers for the Arts, which, by the way, all your artist friends, all your artsy fartsy friends should know about the California for the, uh, the, uh, the California League of, uh, for the Arts, which you, it only costs 50 dollars a year to join. And then you can have these really cheap um, sessions with entertainment lawyers who can tell you if you're going to get into legal cow pie. And believe me, this book, I could get into some big legal cow pie. Because there's a lot of people in this book who have a lot more money than I do. So I have to be careful. And so <laughs> we're going to do there. And once that's done, we're going to hand it out to uh, good folks like you who want to read it and see what you think. I mean, it, it's based basically, um, the, the lead character is based on experiences in my life in the music business as it runs juxtaposed up against this uh, guitar hero we know as John Lennon. Dude, you've you've presented it so so compellingly. I, I cannot wait. I I really really can't wait. Um, can't you just put some disclaimer? Can't you just put some disclaimer at the start saying the views expressed in this novel are not necessarily those of the writer? <laughs> well, the the uh, the um, the dedication. I won't talk about anything else. But the dedication is. Uh, I'm dedicating the uh, the book to um, the four people from my generation that really broke our hearts who were assassinated. The Kennedys, Martin Luther King, and John Lennon, all shot in America. And, you know, for, for me, that was the end of innocence, really. Like, uh, you know, mm. that's when I really started questioning the American experience, especially as it relates to violence. It's, it's so interesting uh, that you're talking about that, because I was listening to an interview with Oliver Stone yesterday uh, on a podcast. I think it was a Joe Rogan podcast, and he was talking about the, e- the end of innocence and that sort of time. And it's, that's, it's a really mm-hmm. succinct way of putting it, because, you know, America used to be such an aspirational place like in, in America, and also globally, it was, so, it, was so, it was so desired and coveted and, you know, aspired to. And that, that seems to have sort of rusted away a little bit over time, you know. The, the, the perception of America is nowhere near as healthy as it used to be. Well, if you look around the world, though, there's a lot of worse places. So if, you, if you've got a country, if you've got a country that really knows how to, like, 
make movies. We've always been good at our own propaganda. You know, we have a mythos, you know, the old West, you know, the guy with the six shooter, you know, there's this whole mythos that of the American experience that has been propagated for many, many decades that people start believing in because they don't want to look at the other stuff, which is, you know, slavery and uh, a lot of uh, problems with our healthcare system. Oh, and by the way, we did have an empire where we killed 200,000 Filipinos. And we don't want to look at that. We don't teach it in our history books. We don't want to look at it. So most of the world believes, along with the people who live here, in this whole mythos of America. Not to deny it, because there's a lot of good things about it, too, but compared to other places... Uh, it is a lot better. I mean, look at the John Lennon experience with Yoko Ono. Sorry to keep coming back to that, but that's where my head's at these days. Uh, he got out of the UK because there was a lot of lingering racism towards Japanese, not so much Germans, but apparently Japanese uh, in the UK after the war. And he was getting all kinds of hate mail about Yoko. The fact that she didn't sing in a, in a kind of a way that anybody could ever really appreciate didn't help either. But there was a lot of racism. And so Yoko wanted out of there. And so he, she talked him into moving to New York. Now, if there had been less racism in the UK, maybe they wouldn't have moved to New York and Lennon would be alive today. Oh, my God. That's just fast, absolutely fascinating. I agree with you. There's, you know, it's, people are very quick to, to insult America per se because it obviously has got a, a questionable leader right now. But there are so many great things about it as well. And I'm, I'm always at pains to point that out when I speak to people about America because it's definitely one of being overall one of the nicest places I've ever lived. What is your what, are, what do you think is the greatest things? I mean, you live you've lived in a lot of different places in the world. You and D have been around. What is it about America? Why why are you here, man? Uh, okay, well, I want to talk about California rather than America because I do think that's quite distinctive. But having said that, I've traveled from I've done my own uh, road trip across America. I drove from the east to the west coast in the space of about two weeks, and so I got to chill out with people from all different states. And one of the things I would say about California and America is friendliness openness people are very welcoming and friendly very much so in america i've been welcomed with open arms you know you're right i mean i've been all over england and their people are more reserved that way 100 percent. they may they, they may be you know as friendly over time but just on the surface american people are you know they're prepared to give you a shot and be friendly to you if you're going to re respond accordingly i love that i think it's one of the most beautiful places i've ever been in my life the, the variety of landscapes is just incredible. And living where we do in the Bay Area and Northern California in particular, I think it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. Yeah, you you got you you really uh, you really landed in some really good pie there. Mm, absolutely, and Oregon as well. I mean, when you go further north, all the way up the West Coast and down the West Coast to San Diego and Los Angeles, it's just incredible. It is. It really is amazing. Like, why would anybody want to live anywhere else? And the weather, the weather's absolutely brilliant in uh, in California in general. So it's just lots of lots of lot nice stuff to enjoy about it. You know, it's very interesting that you say that about the friendliness thing because I, I I tend to uh, I tend to forget about that. I get a little cynical in that, and I start thinking, you know, we're so divided. You know, a lot of people hate each other because of the Trump thing and all that. But, you know, people are generally really friendly. And I, I remember the Woodstock experience where the hippies ran out of food. That, you know, they didn't they didn't prepare for that thing very well at all. If you look at the pictures of people, with stock, right. they don't have backpacks with food in it. There's nothing there. Mm. But then the, the, the towns around Woodstock, which were Nixon's strongholds, Republicans who didn't want to see a bunch of 300,000 hippies coming to their farmland. 
when they heard the hippies were running out of food, what did they do? They raided their pantries. They made sandwiches. They gave them Campbell's soup. They Whatever they had, they just shoveled it, shoveled wow. it. So, you know, that is the interesting and very redemptive uh, view that you give there, Oliver, of, of basically Americans having this basic friendliness that isn't necessarily only a veneer. It really is friendly. Yeah. Mm, I've always found that. How did we get that? I don't know. It's 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 awesome. It's absolutely awesome, and, and it's wonderful. There's so many yeah. positive things about it's America. Okay smile and, you know, I'm I'm a big fan. Also, we've got you know we've got horrible problems with racism in this country at the moment as well. But it still remains a an incredibly cosmopolitan place to live, especially if you live somewhere you know in San Francisco, for example. I like the melting pot of cultures. How can you call yourself a rich place, a rich um, country or city if you don't have ideas and perspectives from all over the world yeah well here where we live you know here in, in northern california where we all live we, we we do get to see many many cultures i think part of the problem with the rest of the country is there's this thing in in uh in science called the mirror exposure effect have you heard of that no tell me okay it's a it's it's a, how do i do this simply okay the first time a new idea or something new of anything comes into your consciousness from some from the outside world almost everybody without exception reacts suspiciously and negatively to sure. it no matter what it is mm -hmm. then if if enough people if, if, if the idea is sound enough if the idea has merit if the idea resonates with people and it sticks around the next thing that happens is people get curious about it they go oh what is this a black person just moved down the street. They, I'm tired of being afraid of them. Maybe I'll go check it out. You right. know, maybe you're somewhere in Kansas where you've never seen a black person in your life. Hmm. And this is the mere exposure effect. Then the next level is you meet the black person. You go, you know, they're really nice. It feels so good not to be afraid of them. Yeah. <laughs> they don't look like they're going to break in my house. Hmm. That's fantastic. Hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's the opposite of fear. It's relief. Hmm. And then you, when you feel that relief, that's when the oxytocin kicks in and you go, I love this person. I don't know why I even feared you to begin with. Wow, that's awesome. And then the very last phase, right, the, next, the very last phase is you're no longer fearing. You're not so much curious anymore because you've already met him. You're not that much in going crazy about him anymore because, you know, they just become part of the, the neighborhood. Hey, how's it going over there, man? And then it's on to the next fear and the next curiosity and the next acceptance. I mean, it just goes on and on and on like that in, in the human consciousness. Exactly. Things and, and that's, that's um, that goes from that goes back to time immemorial, surely, as well. I could when you were when you were describing that, I was thinking about, you know, people from, as I said, like thousands of years ago, probably having exactly the same physiological reaction to something that they don't know. So the unknown, the fear of the unknown. And then something like a dog or a wild dog, for example, comes close to their pack and they're like, whoa, this is fucking scary. We're probably going to need to kill this thing. And then they realize that it's not particularly scary. And actually, maybe it just wants to be friends. And then you develop a relationship with it and it's all good. I know. It's, it's crazy. I mean, and the next thing you know, you've got a pug dressed as Santa in your house. Or all the Columbus statues in America are no longer standing. You know, it's like <laughs> an idea that, that this was a brutal guy that killed a lot of people uh, is now kind of trending. And people, when they see and when you go out there, like people are tired 
of having monuments to violent people. <laughs> and, you know, mm -hmm. at first it's really a scary idea to pull down a statue of Columbus. But after, after a while, it's like, you know, I think they're right. Get rid of that fucker. <laughs> Jim, I was, it's so interesting. I was listening to a debate about this in England, you know, since the um, George Floyd uh, murder and everything that's happened around that. There's been talk of pulling down statues in oh, England yeah. as well. And, uh, and a, few, a few have been pulled down. And they talked about one particular um, monument in, around the Houses of Parliament. They said that's going to have to come down. And somebody responded, if you're going to talk about the Houses of Parliament and racist associations, you're really going to have to destroy the whole thing. I know that because British history is steeped in colonialism and, you know, conquering other countries, as is, you know, same same with Spain as you just and Italy, you know, countries you've just been alluding to. Yeah, well, you guys learned in the lap of the Romans, man. Right. <laughs> We've always got somebody else to blame from further up the line, haven't we? <laughs> they came and kicked your butt and then went, hey, man, let's be Roman. Let's <laughs> I... conquer other people. <laughs> I, I'm, I can't wait to ask you this question. I don't know if you're going to be able to give me an answer off the cuff, but it's a, you're a wonderful person to ask. What's the strangest thing you've ever seen? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you know when you get to be my age, there's so many. It's like a car jam in your head. Uh, let's see. <laughs> well, you know, I think the strangest thing, there's two things. I fell off of a roof. I fell three stories one time when I was 21. I still have a pin in my ankle from that. And I, when I was falling, I saw the back of my own head and my, my arms stretched out like I was looking at myself from behind. So the only thing I could figure is I was either out of my mind or I was out of my mind looking at myself from a different place. Wow. See, so maybe you died for a moment. Yeah. And that the locus of consciousness may actually not be in our brains like we think. So that's always something that I've always thought about. Uh, and then the second thing was... Kathy and I were down in Belize. So that's like, sorry, sorry, just quickly, that's like an out, essentially an out-of-body experience. The right? only time it ever happened. To what you're describing. No, I was not on oh, drugs. What you're describing. I was just falling off the roof. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this Brilliant. Was, Liar. We, were, we, were, we were kayaking, <laughs> uh, canoeing rather, through a, a, a river in a cave in Belize, way down, we were like a mile into this mountain. Total darkness. And, you know, going by, seeing like, a, you know, they used to bury their dead there. You know, so there's, there's, there's skeletons along the way of their ancient Mayan ancestors. And coming out of the darkness, I was holding a flashlight. There was this green plant growing in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of this, in a mile into this cave with no sunlight. And I asked the tour guide, I said, how can that be growing there? And he said, it's from the flashlights of the tourists. What does that mean? That means that enough people shine their light on this little no plant in way. the darkness on these tours that kept it alive. Wow. Do you think it, do you think you, that's true? <laughs> I don't know. But the metaphor for me was if we just shine our lights a little more on each other in this darkness we call life, you know, maybe we'll all grow a little better, you know? If we just shine our light a little more. So true. And, you know, niceness, the night, the friendliness we were talking about with, you know, that I was greeted with by American people. It's such a domino effect. When people are nice to you, you are so much more likely to be nice to other people. Absolutely. Uh, we have a couple of people coming here in the cottage. I happen to know they're Trump supporters, which, you know, and I, 
for me, when I get a Trump supporter in my cottage over here, yeah, I always feel a little sorry for him because next to Berkeley, this whole area here is is a liberal bastion. I mean, you, know, you don't even really want to tell people here you're a Trump supporter because you know, you'll get a dirty look. So I, I make it my point as a, as a super host on Airbnb to let them in gently into where they've just stumbled because they don't know. They're from another part of the country. They're here for a wedding. What do they know? So my job, and I think I feel the same way about this, no matter who you are, give them the benefit of the doubt, shine a little more light on them because we're all in the same predicament. We're all going to die someday. We're all caught in the surf of life. The Natural High We are small Smaller than the smallest thing You've ever seen We are small Our reality Could be fantasy We are vast as space Bigger than the Milky Way We can grow the universe inside I know Macro to micro Macro to macro Macro to micro again Small as the atom Large as the universe Macro to micro again We are young Like a baby born Yesterday Singing 